6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 37 through 41. Well, we're in the book of Psalms, and we're going to explore Psalm 37 through 41 tonight. And... uh, Psalms, of course, is Israel's hymnal, which is, of course, basically a psalm is poetry laced with strong theology. It's amazing how much theology and how much prophecy is tucked away um, within and between the lines here. The Hebrew phrase for the book really means praises. Fifty-five of these are addressed to the chief musician. They were intended to be sung and accompanied with music. Uh, The Greek terms are the uh, terms from which we, we call it the book of Psalms. Samoy is a poem uh, to be sung to a stringed instrument. A saltar, a closely related word, is for a harp or stringed instrument. So that's really what they're, 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 uh, where we get the name of the book. There's actually five books put together, by the way. The book of Psalms, we call it the book of Psalms. It's actually five books. So if you, have the, if you take the 65 books plus Psalms, but take it as five books, you really have 70 books in the Bible. But you talk that way to people and they, they'll get confused. So 66 books is what people normally think of. And most of them, literally over half of them, were written by David himself. Some that are anonymous were probably also written by David, for all we know. But 12 were written by the head musician, head of the choir, Asaph. 12 by the sons of Korah. A couple by Solomon and a few others. Even one by Moses, interestingly enough. A group of these psalms, they group several different ways, but one of the most provocative groupings is the ones that we call messianic. To make a psalm messianic, it is not only one that's prophetic of Jesus Christ, indeed, one could argue they all are in some way, but the ones that are labeled messianic are not only predictive of Jesus Christ, they are so quoted in the New Testament. That's a form of authentication in effect. And it's, the book of Psalms is quoted more than any other book of the Old Testament. Quoted more in the New Testament than any other book. And they, they collectively, as you really immerse yourself in the Psalms, you'll get a, an awareness and a comfort with the integrity of the total package of the, the Bible itself. And uh, the ones that are typically, the, the ones that are Messianic Psalms, you start listing these and you get into a number of them that, uh, that goes on and on and on, frankly. And... Uh, if we go through uh, the details, they talk about his person, that he was the son of God. He was also the son of man. He was the son of David. These are all emphasis all through the Psalms. His various offices, he was a prophet, a priest, and a king. Those are all uh, certified in the Psalms in various ways. And uh, other profiles, he, he, that he would speak in parables, that he'd calm the storm, that uh, uh, he would be despised, he'd be rejected, he'd be mocked. All this is in the Psalms. He'd be whipped, derided, impaled on a cross, which is remarkable when you realize that stoning was the official form of punishment in Israel. No, their Messiah would be impaled on a cross. He would complain about being thirsty, given wine mixed with gall. All these details, the fact that they cast lots for his garments, that not a bone of his was broken. He he, he actually fulfilled over 100 specifications in his death. That he would rise from the dead. 
You descend into heaven and sit on the right hand of God as the high priest. He'll judge all the nations. His reign would be eternal and so forth. That he is the son of God, the son of David, and people that would sing Hosanna to him. All these things are in the book of Psalms. He'll be blessed forever and will come in glory in the last days and so forth. It's interesting that there are three Psalms that we're going to approach next time that are called the, the, the um, kingdom uh, Psalms. The coming of the kingdom, Psalm 46. The range of the kingdom, Psalm 47. And the center of the kingdom being Zion, Psalm 48. So those are all aspects that are going to be specific subjects of uh, uh, the ones that we're leading up to here, Psalm 46 through 48. But let's just... Pause for a minute. I have a tendency to overanalyze things, diagram them, deconstruct them, all of that sort of business. That's all can be very damaging to what the Psalms are really all about. So here's a caveat. There's an emphasis in the scripture of animals that, to chew the cud. The clean animals are ones that chew the cud. And that isn't just a, 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 a zoological issue. It's a spiritual issue. We are instructed to chew the cud. We are, we are Jeremiah says, thy words were found and I did eat them. And John does similar things in Revelation 10 and so on. It's chewing, that was the key to sacrifices, chewing the cud for clean sacrifices. We want to avoid analysis paralysis, getting so hung up in structures and the paradigms of parallelism in the Psalms and, and on and on and on to miss what the real point of it is. They can blindfold our souls to what the real message is. How do you get overcome all this? Forget the notes and just immerse in the psalm personally, and the Lord will take it from there. Shoot for prayerful absorption rather than intellectual dissection. And treat this, each psalm as a gateway to God's presence. There's a little paradigm I think might be useful. The past, each psalm has a past. It very often will try to get a, at least a sense of what was David's predicament that gave rise to that psalm. What were his motives that emerged in his words, in, in, in terms of his past? But what's more important is the present. How does this psalm impact Israel today? All these were national treasures by the king of Israel, but uh, they have an impact and a relevance on Israel today. And then, of course, there's the personal. Past, present, you could say past, present, and future. I'm going to say past, present, and personal. How does it impact you personally? How many of your troubles parallel the troubles that David felt so deeply and speaks to? And so these are the three Ps, past, present, and personal. And uh, I'll leave that with you as we jump in to Psalm 37. That's the first one for the evening. And it's one of what they call imprecatory psalms. And there's a list of these, obviously, and we've encountered uh, three up till now. And uh, this is where they, the, the psalmist calls down judgment on his enemies. That sounds so foreign to a New Testament reader because we fail to appreciate that the enemies of David were rebels against God himself. In fact, it was not just David's welfare that's at issue. It's the, the uh, reputation of God himself that's at risk, in effect. So it would seem. So these are, there's a spiritual appropriateness in these things. The covenant people, Israel, were protected under conditions of obedience. If they were obedient, they're in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27, 
uh, and of course Genesis 12, that God's protection was committed. His reputation was uh, on the line. And, uh, but that was under conditions of obedience. The battle between good and evil started in Genesis 3 and continues to this day, and you'll face it every day. If you're in Christ, you'll be part of that battle day by day. You need to understand that. And so we can't remain neutral in this battle. Jesus made that very, very clear. There are no neutrals. The covenant relationship, if Israel disobeyed, God would, one, chasten them in the land by invasion, drought, famine. Then if they were uh, disobedient, he would take them out of the land through captivity. The covenant relationship that, we, that you lay out in the, in the Torah makes that very, very clear. What, because of that understanding of the scripture, that creates a puzzle in the minds of many of the prophets, Habakkuk being a, one, a major, major example, but certainly many of David's Psalms probe this strange paradox because the wicked seem to prosper and it would seem that God's not doing anything about it. And uh, so uh, that's one of the things that constantly... Uh, emerges in David's consciousness that the why do the wicked's prosper and the righteous appear to be overlooked by the God that's supposed to be watching out for them? That's that's the paradox that is hit head on again and again and again throughout the Scripture. The Book of Job deals with that, and many of the Psalms do. Well, now David's going to take though as he approaches things the long view, and he's going to evaluate both the, the, the wicked and so forth, in terms of, on the one hand, the immediate situation as it appears, but rather to put it in perspective in terms of the ultimate or long-term or eternal values. And he gives four assurances in Psalm 37 in dealing with this issue. The first assurance in the first 11 verses is David's going to emphasize that God can be trusted. Boy, that's a fundamental issue. And frankly, I think God finds a new way every day to ask me the question, do you really trust me or not? He's going to do that to you too. Do you really trust God? Do you all believe in God? Good. Great. That's a good beginning. <laughs> do you trust Him? God can be trusted, is David's assertion, first 11 verses. Then he goes on and builds upon that and points out that God understands your situation. You can't have a problem God doesn't know about. Okay? Now, we know that intellectually, very, hair, very hairs on our head are numbered and all that. And it's quite another to get it in the gut, to really understand God is not surprised. And he probably cares, I shouldn't say probably, he cares more about your situation than you do. Except he sees it from a whole different perspective, much longer term perspective. God does bless his people. You can be trusted. He knows your situation. He blesses his people. And he judges the wicked. If you're troubled because the wicked seem to be prospering, relax. God's in control. And uh, they are facing an ultimate judgment, and, and uh, that, that's the, the final fourth assurance that David will harp on here for roughly 10 verses each. Let's just jump in here. He, David does give one negative instruction. Don't fret. How many of you are guilty of fretting? My hand is up, okay? Tell you what really embarrasses me as I examine myself is how often I fret, I get angry at inanimate objects. You know, 
You'd think there's enough people to get mad at. You don't have to get mad at a stuck dresser drawer or a hammer that hits your thumb or whatever. That uh, I, I find myself continually uh, uh, embarrassed because I let inanimate objects get the best of me. It's terrible. Anyway, <laughs> but, but that's not the subject here. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, David says. Neither be envious against the workers of iniquity. And... Uh, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. There's an allusion you see to the covenant relationship. He's speaking, of course, to Israel. And that's what they, they should be able to trust. He gives uh, four positive instructions. Trust the Lord in verse 3. Delight in the Lord, verse 4. Commit yourself to the Lord, verse 5 and 6. And then rest in the Lord, verse 7 as we'll get to shortly here. So, what do you mean by fret? What does fret mean? You get burned up. It literally means, to, the word in the Hebrew it means to burn up. You get heated up. What's David saying? Stay cool. That's what he's really saying. Stay cool. That's what the Hebrew would imply. And of course, the wicked are temporary and, and are, will eventually be gone. So, then he goes on to this very often memorized portion of Scripture. Many people who haven't memorized any psalm will have memorized Psalm 37, verses uh, you know, uh, uh, four, 4, 5, and 6. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. What a promise that is. What a promise that is. You know, it's so glib, it's so familiar. No, let's think about it. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. That has two sides. He'll give you what you desire, and perhaps even more important, he'll put in your heart those desires you should have. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Wow, that's David's version of uh, uh, Romans 8, 28, right? And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as of the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. The word delight thyself in the Lord, by the way, is, comes from a Hebrew root which means to be brought up in luxury, to be pampered. Be pampered. That's going you know, to be spoiled. To enjoy the blessings and ignore the blesser is idolatry. Think about that. To enjoy the blessings, but to ignore the source of the blessings is a form of idolatry. Covetousness is a form of idolatry. So do you seek things in your life or more of God? The academic answer is pretty easy to jot down, but what's really happening in your life? Are things more important? Here we're in a Christmas season, we're running out shopping, trying to second guess what things we do for other people, or do we seek more of God in your life? Commit thy way unto the Lord. The word commit actually means to roll off your burden. That's what the Hebrew word actually means, to roll off your burden. Cast your care upon him, is the way Peter expresses it, 1 Peter 5. And he goes on to indicate that he will pass the vindication of his servants who have been slandered by their enemies. He'll take care of all of that. But these two verses are very, very Famous verses. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. It's hard not to be annoyed by that, isn't it? When you, feel, you, you find someone who's indulging in fraud and getting away with it. Um, fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Obviously, that's, that's uh, 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 what's implied here. Not that he's prospering alone, but he's prospering inappropriately. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. By the word, the word rest, incidentally, means to be silent. To be silent. To be still. Creative silence is pretty rare in today's world, isn't it? You ever notice how people cannot stand silence? Put a group together and somebody's got to talk. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Is that true? You really believe that? Hasn't happened yet though, has it? Shall, it shall. Don't confuse, you know, understand that the Sermon on the Mount was a kingdom manifesto. The kingdom manifesto. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth. Who quoted that? New Testament. Jesus did. Quote right here. The meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Meekness. What is meekness? That's a, we use that word a lot. Few people really understand what it is. What is meekness? It's force under control of faith. Force under control of faith. Who was the meekest man on the earth in the Old Testament? Said so. There's one, one designated such in Numbers 12, verse 3. Who? Good for you. Gold star. You got it. Moses, absolutely. But there was a guy with great power. Boy, did he pull a, you know, you want to go through those ten plagues? You know, they were, impre- they were designed to be impressive. In fact, not only were they impressive, for the rest of the New Testament, God always points back to that as what he could do. Remember who did that. You know, they are a major uh, uh, trophy of God that he pulled off on the Egyptians. They were not trivial. And obviously God did it, Moses didn't, but he, he was the quarterback. I mean, he was the one that, you know, pulled off the play, if you will. And you could go on and on. So Moses, but he was meek. Force under control of faith is, is, a, is an operating definition for it. It goes on here, then verse 12, the wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. And, uh, oh, and by the way, to get upset because of evil schemes is to doubt the justice of God. We all get upset. But as we do, we need to realize that to, to uh, uh, get upset because of, of the injustice around is, a, in effect, an indictment or a doubt, if you will, on the justice of God. So we need to recognize that. What's the Lord going to do? The, Lord's gonna, the Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. Remember Psalm 2? We went through all of that, Psalm 2. He that sitteth in the heavens shall do what? 
laugh, hold them in derision. See, if God can be trusted, we shouldn't fret. God's in control, and he's just. And since God understands our situation, we also should be free of fear. Should be free of fear. The wicked have drawn out the sword, unsheathed in other words, and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Now, the word conversation is the old English conversation. We, the word today would be behavior. We use the term conversation in a much more narrower sense. The old English was a broader sense. It meant behavior in general. But the word slay, by the way, is the term in Hebrew of slaying an animal. And so the wicked will slay, or slaughter, if you will, those that have upright behavior, the righteous. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken, is the promise that here is reiterated. And then there's a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. We don't know famine. Most of us have never experienced anything like that. Terrible times. But in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. You know, one of the lessons we learn from the New Testament is that God knows how to make a little go a long way. A few loaves and a few fish. You got 5,000. Think about it. And that's 5,000 men. When you read those parables, you say, how could it be 5,000 people? Oh, it's worse than that. There are men and women. Call it 10, you know. They just, they counted the men, you know. We don't have to go through all that. You know those stories. Anyway, move on. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of the lambs. They shall consume into smoke, they shall consume away. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Ordered means secured or established. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. The Lord can keep us from stumbling. Jude reminds you of that in his epistle. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. There's David's summary of his experience. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and the seed is blessed. Depart from evil and do good. And dwell forevermore. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. So again, it's a question of taking the long view here. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom and his tongue talketh of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. 
Yeah, I saw him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man and uphold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. You know, it's interesting to recognize these convictions of our friend David and realize how he communicated that to his son Solomon because so much of this is echoed, of course, in the Proverbs of Solomon. He wrote 3,000 of them. We have you know, a third of them in our book, but, but um, uh, much of the same conviction. And it's, a, it's a confidence in the justice of God, even though we may not see it because we only see a little part of it. It's sort of like examining a tapestry with a microscope. You can see the threads and you see the work. You have no grasp of what they fit in until you stand back and see the whole thing. And we are not in a position to see the whole thing yet. Our days are as a handbreadth as we're going to encounter here shortly. It's going to go on here. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Trust in God is very important to God. And much of your situation will depend on how much you're trusting him. If you trust him, you know he's going to be just, and you know that he has everything under control, despite appearances at times. Okay, let's go to the next one, Psalm 38. This is now a penitential psalm. What do we mean by that? One that we, in which we're experiencing the correction of God. That we're in, we have troubles, but they are in the form of chastisement by a loving father. Big difference in, in perspective here from just being exposed to injustices and the troubles in, uh, that surround us. And here, being in a situation where we're being taken to the woodshed because, because our loving father cares enough to want to chastise us, the penitential psalms, and we're in 38 is one of those. In other words, suffering under God's discipline, what we're dealing with here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music